for life. And of all the weeks of the year, this is the week we celebrate life in the death of our Savior, the Messiah, Jesus, Yeshua, who loved us and gave himself for us that we may have life eternal. So we praise him for life and praise him for the joy of living it out through all the things that life brings, through all the harm that comes our way that's common to humankind. We have a everlasting joy within us and a peace of God that passes human understanding. It's a delight, as I said, to see you today. This week, we celebrate Passover. We remember Passover. And we remember it in two ways. We remember it, first of all, as the deliverance of the children of Israel, the people of God, the covenant people of God, as they had become enslaved in Egypt over a period of a few hundred years. And now the Lord has heard their cry for deliverance. The good thing about the Lord is that He does hear us. That's one of the good things about Him. There's so many. But He hears us and He hears our cry. And he, at the right time, he sends the right person that will bring about the change that's needed in our lives. In this case, it was his servant Moses. And later, Messiah himself, the Lord God, Son, Son of Man, Son of God, we call him Jesus or Yeshua, who saves us, not only the people of Israel, whom he came to minister to and to deliver, but also to all of us who are scattered, who are far away from the promises of God, because we were not part of the Israelite nation. Some of us are, some of us aren't, most are not. But the good news about the Messiah, Yeshua, as he delivered more than a nation out of slavery, he delivered a people who put their faith in him, who put their faith in him to become a free people from bondages of life, no matter where they are. I've traveled the world over the last lifetime, my lifetime. I've been in many places where little freedoms were experienced, if any. I've been in nations where every freedom was robbed of the people. Every freedom was alienated from the people, including the freedom of worship. And I yet have seen in those places of darkness, freedom that cannot be taken away because of the relationship that we have and they have in the Messiah, Jesus, in Yeshua, our Savior. At this Passover season that begins today and we'll remember it even next Sunday 
with the Resurrection Sunday, when we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus, of Yeshua. It's quite a week. It's a week that should change the calendar of our lives. And I want to, on that note, I want to take you to the first Passover. And that Passover is located in the uh, 12th chapter of Exodus. And if you would open your Bibles there, it would help you immensely today. For I'm a Bible teacher, a Bible preacher. And I believe in making the people of God biblically literate. I believe that my life has been spent that way and believe that the rest of my life will be spent that way in order to bring people to a working relationship with God through the living Word of God, the Messiah, and the written Word of God, the text. And my job today is to make this Word of God come alive to you so that you can see Yeshua, you can see the Messiah Jesus in its pages, waving at you between the sentences, between the lines of your Bible. I hope today that before we leave, that when you see this text in chapter 12 of Exodus, and chapter 13 and 14, that you will see Yeshua between the lines, between the lattice, waving at you and saying, I am here. I'm speaking to you today out of this word to bring it alive into the full context of what it means. In chapter 11 of Exodus, we're made aware of another plague coming upon the people of Israel. Upon, not Israel, but the people of Egypt. It's the plague called the plague on the firstborn. All nine plagues so far that God has brought upon Egypt has not been convincing enough to Pharaoh to set the people of God free to go worship God in their land. The 10th plague comes and it will affect the Pharaoh and his household more than any other plague because the death of the firstborn will also take the crown prince of Egypt in its wake and he too shall die. It is a terrible story. It has horror written all through it. And it has implications, though, that will resound through time into eternity. That God has a plan of deliverance. When all else fails, God shows up. And he will bring deliverance even with a stiff neck and a hardened heart. And where people are totally in rebellion against God. He will not conclude the chapter of the book there, but he will bring about a living reality of deliverance that cannot be thwarted by the strongest empires and governments of this world. 
Pharaoh will learn a lesson today in the scripture where he will set free the people of God to go to worship God in their own freedom, in their own land. And so the chapter 11 begins to lay it out for us. And I need to tell you that all these 10 plagues that affected the land of Egypt, beginning with the river Nile and the water turning to blood, every one of those plagues was determined to overthrow in the imaginations and the minds of the people of Egypt, one of their gods. I've listed out in studies of the past, the 10 gods of the Egyptians that are represented by these 10 plagues. It's an, and the last one on the firstborn has to do with the fact that Pharaoh had declared himself to be God. And so the judgment on Pharaoh of the death of the firstborn. So let Pharaoh know he is not the superpower he believes he is. But there is a God supreme who is above all things, who created the universe by his spoken word and brought life about by his breath of life into an inanimate structure of clay. He is the ruler. It was a lesson that Pharaoh uh, did learn. And it's a lesson that other kings and other kingdoms would learn. Like uh, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, who thought he too was God. And yet his table was overturned. And so what we have here is the beginning of a story of redemption that reverberates through time, affects us in our chairs, in our bedrooms, in our houses, in our pews, in our today, wherever we may be. This story should reverberate in your heart that God is in control of all time and space. He will have the last word. He will have the final say. He will bring about deliverance in his time and in his way. Then the chapter 11, I just go back to that just briefly in verse nine. And it says, the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you so that my wonders may be multiplied. In chapter 12, this is the chapter that begins to unfold the redemption story. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month the first month of your year. Now, at first reading, it may not be a speed bump in your life. There's already a calendar. 
Israel has a calendar called the civil calendar. And it began somewhere in the fall, usually in the month of September sometime. That's the beginning. That's when we celebrate Rosh Hashanah, the beginning of the year, the first of the year. That calendar will not be done away with. That calendar is still used today by Israel. But there's another calendar. It's God's calendar. See, God's calendar runs by his time, not man's time. Runs by his ways and not our ways. His calendar runs by his declarations and not our declarations. And so, he says, this month is to be for you the first month. The first month of your year. What he's saying is that when God shows up to bring deliverance, you're going to mark your days differently from then on. He'll bring a new orientation of time and space into your life. And the day of deliverance is a day we will all remember. We remember COVID-19 having its sway upon our nation, upon the world in 2020. How will we forget it? Just in time, we'll, as time goes on, we'll forget it. But we won't forget it who lived through it. In the great plague of 1918, that took millions of lives. I was born somewhere later. But I remember the stories of that great plague of 1918, the flu. I remember it being known to kill many, many people. And the cemeteries I'd walked through as a boy would have that date of death, 1918, on it. But you know, I was taught that. I was not born then. But I was taught that by survivors. And I remember, because of the survivors, that date. But you know what? This generation we're living in today did not know that date. They had to be reminded by historians that that had occurred. People had forgotten. It had been wiped out of our collective memory as a nation. But we, five generations later, don't remember it. But what about 2020? Oh, we'll remember that for about five generations and it'll be forgotten. It'll be history. The survivors will be married someday if the Lord tarries is coming. And that next generation will have only hearsay and stories to remember and it will disappear. But when God acts in history for the deliverance of a people, for the deliverance of a nation, of the deliverance of people globally who are scattered abroad, who put their faith in the Messiah, that date will live forever. We change, our calendar reminds us of one named Yeshua, Jesus. And even though the world wants to deny him a right to their own heart and displace him from 
normal, average, typical daily communications from the university to the workplace. The truth is, you, we will never eradicate the collective memory of the world that, the, that God changed the calendar, that the Messiah did come, that Egypt was defeated and that Israel was delivered in the first original Passover. And matter of fact, when you come to know the Messiah, Jesus, as your own personal Lord and Savior, there's something in your memory that says, life changed for me that day. And then the calendar changes. Time begins to mean something. History has a value. And then it says in verse three, tell the whole community of Israel, tell all Israel, that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb on the 10th day. Take a lamb. Now my Bible reads for his family. And I want to correct that translation. I know there's goodwill in these translations done by, by those who are translators that produce these versions for us. And I have that, I have a highest admiration and deep appreciation for translators because you cannot translate perfectly. I'm a translator myself and I know you cannot do it perfectly. But here's the thing that staggers me when I read this verse. Take a lamb and it reads literally in Hebrew, the original language is written in by Moses. It says, take a lamb for the house of the fathers, plural fathers, one lamb. And it says, take one lamb for the house of the fathers. Well, 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 that's different from saying one for your family, isn't it? It doesn't say one for your father or the house of your father. It says, take one for the house of your fathers. What was intended here? And it doesn't say, take lambs, plural. It says, take one lamb for the house of the fathers. And the question is, who are the fathers? Is the fathers living then? Of course, no, it includes them, but it's not what's being said here. Who are the fathers? Who are the patriarchs of Israel? Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Jacob's 12 sons. Those are the ones. Take one lamb for all of Israel from the patriarchs to the beginning, to the end of time. Take one lamb for all of them. Now that's in the text. And that can, can, be, can be confusing to a translator because it's easier to say, take one for your family. But when we understand the richness of this text and the depth of what it is saying, it is saying that there is going to be one lamb for all Israel. There's, 
this is simply a metaphor or a commentary. Maybe that's a better expression. A, a commentary on what is to come. Right now, the first Passover is a foretaste of a greater Passover. And the greater Passover will be one Lamb of God who will come and redeem all Israel and those, it says, are scattered abroad, scattered afar, it says it elsewhere. And if any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor. And if that's, that's a commentary on what is to come. That when you receive the message of the true Passover lamb, who is the Messiah, Jesus, Yeshua, you don't keep him to yourself. You share him. With, he will be part of the salvation of the house. And you are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with each person will eat. And the animals, it says, must be without defect. Verse five, what does that mean? It means you have to examine it. That you can bring that animal into your house. Now that's not normal. You can bring this animal into your house for a period of days, five days, from the 10th, 11th, 12th, 13th, and 14th to the 14th of the month, this new month on God's calendar. From the 10th, 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th. During those days when that lamb for the house of the fathers of Israel is brought in, he, it is to be examined for any defect. And I want to take you quickly to John's gospel. It so happens that chapters 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, in John's gospel is about Passover. And this chapter 11 and 12 and 13 and 14 of Exodus is a picture, a prophetic picture of what John's gospel elucidates in teaching about the Messiah Jesus during the Passover season. And it's uncanny. There are so many particulars that can be brought out that we, do, we cannot because of shortness of time and space and memory and abilities to do it and the ear to hear. Can't do it, take hours and hours and hours. But we'll do a few. But these animals must be without defect, must be examined. Now let me see, let's go back to the time of Messiah, Yeshua, of Jesus. For Passover, John tells us, he's gone a week earlier, he's, at, he's in Bethany. But on a certain day, he says, I must go into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. What day was that? What day of the month? Matter of fact, it's the same month as this. Exactly. What we call the day of the month, or the Jewish people call the month of Nisan. 
back in the time of Moses called Aviv, that month is the very same month at Passover time that Yeshua as says, bring me this donkey to ride in to Jerusalem on. And what day of the month was it? It was the 10th day of the month. Exactly the same as the 10th day of the month in which the lamb was brought into the house in Egypt. Now, the lamb of God is going into the house of the fathers in Jerusalem. What is the house? Well, even if you went to Israel today and you said to a taxi cab driver, take me to the house. Do you know where he's taking you? He knows exactly where he's taking you. He's taking you to the temple grounds because the temple was called the house. It still is called the house. It's the house of the fathers of Israel. And so, although it's no longer standing, the base of it is still there, yet there is a collective memory of Israel of what is the house of the fathers, the house of Israel. And the temple was that picture of that. So he goes to the temple on the 10th day. As, that, as he goes into, that, that, into Jerusalem, he goes to the temple, to the house itself. He's entering the house. And you follow John's gospel clearly, you'll, say, you'll see that Yeshua is there every day from the 10th and the 11th and the 12th and the 13th and the 14th he's there. And what is happening to him? He's being examined for defects. It's that period of days in which all these scribes and lawyers came to question him on these different subjects to try to trip him up to see if there was any defect in him. And they found none. And finally he was brought to the high priest. And John's gospel brings that out too. He went before Caiaphas, the high priest, and the high priest examined him as well and found no defect in him. The Lamb of God was examined by the authorities of the house and found without fault. Then he was taken to the house of Pilate the governor and examined there and found without defect. This was a priceless human son of God, son of man, brought into the house of God, of the people of Israel, examined just like was in the days of Moses when Israel was being delivered. That's why I tell you that these chapters here are precious in Exodus because they are, they are prophetic. They are telling you, they are hinting at and alluding to a greater day to come when the calendar indeed will change and be marked by this worldwide affected event. 
take care. Uh, now my Bible says in verse six, take care of them until the 14th day. That's not what it says in Hebrew. It's close, but not exactly. It says in Hebrew, take care of him, not them. It's singular. Take care of him until the 14th day of the month. We're seeing a picture of the Messiah. We're seeing it displayed right here in Egypt that will unfold in Jerusalem. And all the people of the community, the house of Israel, must slaughter him, not them. You see, each, house had a ha each household had a lamb, but that lamb was not the lamb. It was a representation of the lamb of the house of the fathers. As if, and when you take communion, the Lord's Supper, or a Seder meal, when you do that, you have the elements there. Now, in the communion service, you don't have all the elements. You have the bread and the wine. But there's another element, which we'll see here, called bitter herbs. And unleavened, you know, the unleavened bread is there, of course, but bitter herbs, we'll see that in a minute. But what is happening here, you must slaughter him at, and your Bible may say twilight. I don't know what it says, but it may say twilight. And I think that's in the end of verse six. But that word twilight is not all what it's meant. It's a Hebrew expression that's not as common in the Bible. Uh, that expression uh, is bain ha-arbaim. Bain ha-arbaim. That means nothing to us. I understand, I understand. But let me, let me just translate it for you. It would read this way. You must slaughter him between the evenings. Between the evenings. Now, we have no concept for that in our calendar, do we? But Israel still does, as it always has. You see, there's two evenings on the same day. The first evening is noon, when the sun is highest. That's called the first evening, or the beginning of the evening. And the second one is at sunset, when the sun sets and the earth rotates and the sun appears to have set. That is the second one. So between high noon and the sun is at its peak to when it's at its lowest ebb, it's those two evenings that you reckon this time. And between the evenings takes us to an hour of the day we know as three o'clock in the afternoon. And I ask you a question. What time of the day did Messiah die on the cross? Between the evenings at three o'clock in the afternoon, what is traditionally known as the hour of prayer or evening prayer, he was offered up. Then you take some of the blood, and this is verse seven, some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. So there's gonna be blood from those lambs and it's gonna be put on the lentils, on the door frames. Let me ask you a question. If you were putting it on the door frames of the house, where would you paint it? Because remember, there's, a, there's gonna be a, uh, the Lord's gonna pass over and the firstborn are gonna die if there's not blood on the doorpost of the house. 
So where would you put it? Well, if you go to the movies, it's on the outside of the house, around it. But we're not dealing with movies here. This is a, a slave's hut. It's a simple floor. It's a dirt floor. It's got an entry. And you want, that blood is painted on the inside of that door frame. Maybe on the outside too, on both sides, but it's painted, the whole door frame is painted inside and out. So when the door is closed, it is seen visibly on the outside, but it's also seen visibly from the inside. And I need to tell you that the Bible says in verse 13, the blood will be a sign. The, the blood on those lentils will be a sign for whom? It says for you. On, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. That's Passover. Who is the sign for? Is it for the Egyptians on the outside? No, they have their problems. Is it for God? He can see it wherever it is. So who needs the sign? We do. And where is it most visible to the person in the house? From the inside. So the blood may not be reckoned or needed on the outside, but the blood is for a sign to you. God knows where the blood is. He doesn't need a map or directions or a sign for him. But we do. We are creatures of clay, animated by the breath of God. We have limited knowledge. But we, because of our hearts, need a sign that tells us that what has been done, that blood that was shed of that lamb of this household of the fathers was shed for us and it is on the lamp, on the lintel. It is on the door frame, seen visibly. When the door is closed and the wailing and the mourning of the Egyptians begins, you need a sign. And you can look at your door and you know we are covered by the blood. And let me tell you something but the, the hut of slaves. It's a dirt floor. Because of the dirt floor, and there was monsoons, and there was, the rain could come and make the floor muddy. So they dug a ditch around the house. You know, when you go camping, if, you, when you, if you're a good camper, you dig a trench around your tent. If you're a good camper. If you're not a good camper, you don't dig a trench, and, you're, and your tent floor floods when it rains. But to avoid that, you'd build a trench and you build that trench all the way around it and you have drains coming off of it. They drain it away down the hill, away from you. 
when you uh, uh, dig, when you put the blood on the door, or they did, the blood is automatically going to follow gravity. It's going to drain down those doorposts. It's going to drip from the frame of the top. And it's going to drip down right where you walk in. And it's going to go into that drain, that little ditch. It's going to be running. But what is important here is that it covers the entrance to the door, the doorway. It becomes a bloodline that the destroyer cannot cross. When you come to the Messiah and you make the Messiah the Lord of your life and the Lord of your heart and the Lord of your mind and the Lord of your practices and the Lord of your habits, you make him Lord of all. He, because of Messiah, Yeshua, has let the blood of Messiah that is living today abide for you as not only an entrance into the house of safety and the house of refuge and the house of protection and the house of, of security, but it has also brought you a bloodline that is good news to you that the destroyer does not have the last word on your family. The destroyer does not have the last word on your household. And that's what Yeshua does. I don't, my wife the other day said, I know you believe there's a devil. I said, I do. She said, but you never talk about him. I said, I don't. I said, the church talks about him too much. I hear about the devil every Sunday I go to church. I hear about the devil more than I do Jesus sometimes, except for the preacher or the teacher in the Sunday school class or wherever. Everybody's got the devil talking to them or showing them, hurting them, wounding them, angry at them. And I said, you know, I, I, I told my wife the other day, I said, you know, you know all the years I've, we've been married, I've always talked down the devil, not talk him up. I don't deny there's a devil and for sure don't deny there's evil in the world because the world is rife with evil. But I know what Yeshua did. And he put a bloodline between me and the enemy of our souls. Between my family, our home, and the destroyer. Now, surely we will all die unless the Lord comes. Surely death shall visit our door and even will visit us. But even in the visitation, there's still a bloodline that he cannot cross. For I know, as Paul knew, that when I, whom I have lived for, I die for, and because I live for him, I shall be in his presence immediately because there is a bloodline of demarcation, a line of separation that separates us from the rest of the world. And it's our desire that all will know that freedom. All will have that safety, have that security. That's why we preach the gospel. That's why we teach the gospel. That's why we tell our kids when they're, growing, when, they're, when they're small, we teach them, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. We teach them, we raise them, that they may know how to live their lives on the inside of the bloodline. Yes. 
and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Verse 23. Isn't that good news? That is great news. Now let me tell you about this lamb. Going back up into the the passage here. It says, that same night you are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or cooked in water, but roasted over the fire. Head, legs, and inner parts, intestines. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. Fascinating description that the rabbis over the centuries have explored to explain how this happened and what tradition teaches us has been preserved. And the tradition of the Jewish people has preserved this for us. And, and it, it, there's, a, there's a, a, a book called the Mishnah, which is the first part of the Talmud, the Jewish book that's held up and revered next to the Bible. But in the Mishnah, in this Talmud, there's a teaching on how this was done. And it's also in other literature, ancient literature, Jewish literature. You see, this lamb that was to be roasted, it means to evacuate all the water out of it. You got to get it, there cannot be any moisture left in the animal. It roasts out of it. It steams out of it. You get rid of that of that. And so the rabbis teach us and the way this was done was done on a spit. The lamb was killed. The blood was drawn. Can't leave any blood in it. And, and, and a spit was run up through its bottom, up through its throat and out of its mouth. But before that was done, you have to remove the intestines. And so they would pierce the side and open up and begin to remove all the intestines and pierce the heart to drain the blood. And I think of John, at the, John as he explains to us what happened at the cross. He says, the side of Yeshua was pierced. His heart poured forth blood and water. You've got to get rid of the moisture. And it teaches us that the intestines, remember it says the inner parts, they, they, they viscerated, they took open the intestines and they pulled them out because there's a lot of moisture inside the intestines had to be removed. But it says, you're to cook that too. Some would bury it, but not here. It's to be kept and also roasted. So how do they do it? We're taught by the rabbis that what they did with the intestines, they pulled the intestines out, they cleaned them, and then they wrapped them around the head as a crown to dry out in the heat of the roasting. Now you think about that. If you ever had indigestion problems, where's the thorniest place in your body? Right across here where the intestines are. 
You get bloated. I'm a bloated. I've been a little bit under the weather, but not now. I'm better. But I tell you what, it hurts. It hurts when you're sick. I'm, by the way, I've had both COVID shots. I'm well, you know, not contaminated. But I know what that means. So you take this thorny intestine, so to speak, around the crown. It reminds you of a crown of thorns upon the head of Yeshua, doesn't it? Again, this is a picture of the reality. Remember that. Always remember that. It's a picture of the reality. The God gave us the picture to Moses, to the prophets. Gave us the pictures of things to come. These are these are signs, these are pictures of what is real to come. This is just a shadow of what is reality. <clears throat> and when the reality comes, you better understand the shadows. You better understand the shadow that's been cast over history because you will have no meaning of understanding who the Messiah is if you don't understand the shadow that was cast first. And our job is to know Messiah better. And it is here in this sacred scripture of the Torah, the, uh, of Exodus, that we learn more about who the Messiah is. And here's how we're told that animal was done. The intestines were on the, cleaned and moved and put up on the crown of the head in order to dry out. And that spit would run up through the system, out the throat, up the mouth, out the mouth, and a cross piece, a piece of wood, was put across it to hold the mouth wide open to dry out. Fascinating. It's the shape of a cross. It's a vertical spit, not horizontal as we do it today. It's vertical on a stake. The cross piece opening its mouth to dry out the mouth and the tongue, to parch the tongue, to parch the mouth. And I want to remind you of John's gospel again, where he quotes Yeshua saying, from the cross, I thirst. That's no accident. This is simply a picture of the crucifixion. Moreover, to get the moisture out of the body, they would lacerate the rib cage from behind all the way around it. And they would cut in between the rib cages all the way into the, towards the lungs. And when Yeshua was whipped with a cat of nine tails, they lacerated his rib cage till you could see his lungs at work. The suffering was horrible. But this in chapter 12 of Exodus is depicting for us John's gospel, not only John's gospel, but Matthew's gospel, Mark's gospel, Luke's gospel, and the gospel of the, uh, of the apostles, the, the gospel of the Judean Nazarene movement, the first century believers. It's the gospel of salvation to everyone who believes. is roasted. Hmm. I, I, there is more. And it says, they plundered the Egyptians when they were leaving. 
And let me just say to you, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, whenever Messiah passed away, when he died on the cross, amazing, at his resurrection, he plundered hell. He plundered Hades. And he plundered those living beings that, that had been claimed for eternity apart from God. He claimed them as his own. And I will take you to the latter part of chapter 12, verse 37. And it says, as they were leaving the, uh, in, in the Exodus, they made a journey from Ramesses where they were to Sukkot. Now that's an interesting, interesting speed bump in the Bible. Well, what is Sukkot and where is it? And the clue to that is in Genesis 31. Sukkot was what was called the house of Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. And where they lived, he named that place Sukkot. Sukkot means booths, huts. And they lived in huts. They lived in tents. They lived there at Sukkot. It's the hometown of, of Joseph. Remember Joseph, son of Jacob, became the leader of Egypt. The vice Pharaoh, so to speak, the governor, a man of heroic proportions. And Joseph is an interesting story because when you study Joseph, it's like you're reading the story of the Messiah, Yeshua. There is no sin found in him. He's betrayed by his brothers, by his own kin. Because Joseph was buried in the tomb of a rich man, wasn't he? And it was to be temporary, wasn't it? Now we read in John's gospel that there was one named Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man who had a tomb. And no man had ever been laid in that tomb before, as it was for Joseph. That tomb was just for him. And it was to be vacated, not held forever. Now, Joseph of Arimathea, you heard that name Arimathea, but you know when the, when the Greek, Grecian empire came in and took over that land of what we call Israel, they came to a place called Ramah, the birthplace of Joseph. And they changed the name to Arimathea. And it's the same, it's the, it's the house of Joseph. It's the home where he was raised. Now that's uncanny, isn't it? Can that be scripted out even better? I mean, that's what the gospel writer John tells us. And the tomb of Joseph of Ramah was emptied and transported into the land of the future as a picture, a hint, an illusion 
a way of seeing something to come. That when this lamb of the house of the fathers, when he is slaughtered and he is put on the spit and his, he cries out, I am thirsty. I have no moisture left. Dehydrated. And he dies. This promises to us that there is in Exodus 12 promises us and chapter 13 promises us that God will not leave the lamb in the tomb, but will raise it from the dead. So chapter 13 of Exodus says, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the sons of Israel swear an oath. <clears throat> he said, God will surely come to your aid and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. There is the promise. And after leaving Sukkot, they camped at Etham. That's the promise of this story to be fulfilled and told by the gospel writers and John who just let it expand into the greater part of his gospel was a picture of what happened in Egypt. But let me just conclude and say, this is not Egypt's story. It's not only Israel's story. It's not only the people of Israel's story. It's the story of the people of the Messiah. Whoever puts their faith and trust alone in him, in the one lamb for the, all the house of the fathers, the one lamb who promises that all those scattered among the nations will have a deliverer, a savior, and God's mercies has not neglected you. Father, thank you for this word of life. Thank you for breathing into, into us the breath of life in our first father, our first ancestor. Thank you that that life in us kindles us on a daily basis, but we need a new life that's not tainted by sin not tainted by the rigors of this life that would set out to destroy us. Not tainted by the bondages in any form they may come, in any kind of addiction or dependency. Thank you that you have sent us the Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world that we may live life to its fullest through faith in Him. And for those watching today and those that are here, the most important step and decision that we can make is that eternal choice to step out of bondage into the light of freedom found in the Messiah, 
Jesus, Yeshua, our Savior. And if you have drifted away from that premise, that proposition, and you've drifted away from that reckoning in your own life, an invitation is always there. It never goes away. That invitation stays with you as it is even now that you may come to the Messiah, ask Him to forgive you as you repent of your waywardness that brought you into bondage. And with your faith and confession in Him, let life pour into your being the life of freedom. In the name of Almighty God and His Son, His eternal Son, Messiah, Jesus, Yeshua. Amen. God bless you, Pastor. Shall we stand together? Thank you, Ed. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Father, Father, I pray the blessing of your spirit upon each of us, Lord, and upon those who are listening today. I pray, Father, for those that have not yet opened their hearts, that even now they would bow before you and receive the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Thank you for the word. Father, that we have received, I pray that you would cause it to live in us and grow in us. In Jesus' name, we thank you for it. Amen. Remember that the people receiving the offering will be at the doors. God bless you. Thank you for being here. One of our greatest tools in worship. Would you give with us on today in your worship? You can give online at theassemblyflawance.org. Navigate to the top right corner. If you're on a desktop, click the Give Now button. If you're on a mobile device, tablet, smartphone, click the three horizontal lines in the top right corner of the screen and click the Give Now button. Both of those Give Now buttons will take you to our online giving platform. You can also text to give by texting the number 77977 that says SC Assembly Give, and that's all one word. You'll receive step-by-step -step instructions on how to give via text. Lastly, you can give by mailing in check or money order to The Assembly at 2925 West Palmetto Street, Florence, South Carolina, 29501. Help us to advance the kingdom of God all around the world.